Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, having just turned the halfway point in our year-long study of this old, old letter. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you should be able to find one here on the, on the center aisle on both sides. There are stacks of Bibles. Somebody would be happy to pass one over to you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, it would, it would thrill us if you would take that one as our gift to you. Uh, that would make us really happy. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. Um, and our passage this week picks up where we left off last week. Where we left off last week, what we touched on only briefly, what we really only hinted at, was this phrase in verse 14 of chapter 9 that describes Jesus' death as purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's kind of his summary of what Jesus' death does for us. Purify our conscience from dead works. This is one of those times where the word in the original language means pretty much what we expect it to mean when we read the English translation, conscience. What do you think of when you think of conscience? I mean, maybe you think of Jiminy Cricket and letting your conscience be your guide. Um, and, and that's not totally far off. I mean, that, 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 that's somewhat there. Conscience is, is a sort of uh, compass inside you to help you know what's right and what isn't, so, or a sense of propriety, if you will. But, but I want to be even more specific. Actually, the way that it's used here and the way that we, we often mean it is that it's a sense that you've done wrong. It's a sense that inside you that tells you you failed to meet a standard that you own, that you set for yourself. Maybe the standard that you hold others to, you've been unfaithful to. Conscience is a kind of sense that you've been hypocritical. One of my favorite descriptions of what it is, is, is given by Jonathan Edwards just hundreds of years ago. He, he described conscience as a sense of being inconsistent with yourself. A sense of inconsistency inside yourself, that you hold to one standard, but your actions don't meet that standard. That's what conscience is. It tells you that. I think it's a universal experience. It's not just an experience for those who believe in God and want to match God's standards. I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would say that we have not performed how we want to. When we have different, different standards that we fail. That's going to be distinct to each person, but all of us have had that experience. We know we haven't performed like we wish, like we expect others to perform. And it's that sense of failure that Jesus has come to address. We've been talking a lot in the last three, four weeks about what our author refers to as the new covenant. A set of promises that God made to his people even when they had sinned against him. He came to them in their sin in the middle of promising he was going to judge them. And he said, I am going to make a new covenant with you. Not like the one that you failed to keep. And the new covenant has these promises in it. And we've been unpacking those promises. Many of those promises are future oriented. They're they're what he's going to do to change us. To make it more uh, possible for us to obey the terms of the covenant. But one of the things we've noticed is that at the heart of those new covenant promises, at the heart of the promises to change who we are, is a promise that God is going to address what we have been. He's going to address the failures in our past, as well as giving us a new ability for the future. Please don't miss that. That's what's brought us to this point in the letter. How does Jesus' death not just make a covenant possible that changes who we are in the future, 
but that addresses what we have all known about ourselves, if we're honest, that we haven't been who we need to be in the past. The foundational promise in that new covenant was the promise that God was not going to remember our sins anymore. He's going to forget about our sins. He was going to show us mercy. Where we are now is a part of the letter that explains how he's able to do that. It's all about the blood of Jesus. Our passage unpacks today, really verses 15 to verse 22, unpack the truth hinted at in where we stopped last week, that Jesus' blood somehow cleanses us from a past that otherwise we can't shake. It purifies our conscience, our sense that we haven't been who we should be. This passage helps us understand that truth. I want to read it for us first and then then give you a bird's eye view as we work from there into the details. So if you found it, Hebrews chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 14, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read together? I, actually, I believe I'll back up to verse 13 and read beginning there. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where will is involved... The death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. You can be seated. What you may have noticed from this passage is that it's top-heavy starts as a conclusion, verse 15, from what we talked about last week. If verse 14 promises that Jesus' blood purifies our conscience once and for all from all the things that lead to death that we've been pursuing instead of faithfulness to him, then verse 15 draws a conclusion from that. The fact that Jesus does this for us makes him the mediator or the guarantor of a new covenant, one that's made possible because he died to make up for all the failures of the old covenant. And then from that truth, from the truth of what Jesus does for us in verse 15, our author goes into an example to help us see how the old covenant required death, how he had to die if the purification we wanted was going to be possible. So then verse 16 through, through verse 22 is all about giving examples about what a covenant is like. Verse 16 and 17 says some general things about a covenant. And then verses 18 through 22 show how the, the covenant that Moses made was following those principles. That's a bird's eye view. It starts at the top with the truth of what Jesus has done and then works out why Jesus had to do what he did 
to fulfill what the old covenant required. Now, for our purposes today, what I want to do is camp on the old covenant and what it required first. That means verses 16 to 22. I think we really need to get a good sense of the problem that failure in that old system presents to us before we can really deeply appreciate how Jesus solves that problem. So we're going to go 16 to 22 and then come back to where our passage begins and try to really deeply understand how Jesus makes this purification of our conscience possible. That's where we're headed this morning. We're going to start with verse 16. Really, the summary is this. Our failure means death. It's that simple. Our failure to perform to the standards that we were to meet, the failure that our consciences tell us we've been guilty of, is a failure that means death. If verse 14 promises Jesus is going to purify our consciences, then, then the implication of that is that our consciences now are defiled somehow. They tell us the truth, that we failed, and that it's a big deal, that our failure means death. Now, of course, there are plenty of other attempts to explain our failure and what it means. I started by saying I think we all sense it. I think all of us, maybe not right this minute, but at some point we have known that we haven't done what we needed to. Whatever, whatever standard we may hold to, we all have that sense. What we have is, what, what, what's different is how we explain away that sense, right? How we address failure, the resources we draw on to, to make up for the fact that we haven't been what we need to be. I think one of the most common today is to almost explain failure away, not to deny it, but to explain away its importance, one of the things that you hear a lot now, I think, is talk like, I'm only human, right? I'm only human. What does that mean? What else can you expect? Of course, I'm going to fail. I'm only human. Openness and vulnerability and admission of guilt is, is in right now. It's, it smacks of authenticity to just sort of be who you are and let everybody see it. Let it all hang out. But one of the, one of the byproducts of that, isn't it, is a sense that, that, that failure just isn't that big of a deal. It's normal. Of course we fail. We're human. That way of addressing failure works pretty well as long as you're the one who's failing. I think it comes up short, though, when someone fails you. When you have been the, the victim, so to speak, of someone else's failure to meet the standards that they should have met, well, then it becomes harder to just sort of toss up your hands and say, hey, you know, they're only human, so they hit my car. They're only human. What else am I to expect? It runs pretty short then. When, when there's issues of justice at stake and we have been the victims of injustice, we cry out for justice and the failure becomes a much bigger deal. And if we cry out for justice like that, why shouldn't God? Another way, maybe a more common way, long, a way that's not so rooted in our particular time and place. Another way of addressing failure is to try to make up for failure by balancing it out with good deeds, Right? It's common. It's 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 kind of it's pretty common in lots of different religions. I think it's rooted in our own sort of common moral sense that when you do wrong, you want to balance that out by doing good. That your life is sort of a scale, and you're trying to make sure that that by the end of your life, the scales are tipping towards goodness and not towards failure. Maybe we maybe we associate this most with a religious system like those in the East, particularly Hinduism, the notion of karma that you're trying to outweigh the things that you've done wrong in this life so that you can move up a rung in, in the next life, that, that, that the whole, your whole life is this balancing act. 
It's a, it's a religious system probably delivered to us most memorably in the hit series, My Name is Earl. Anybody else? My Name is Earl. It's this guy who sort of lived uh, most of his 40, 45 years doing nothing that matters and basically ripping people off. And he has some sort of religious experience. I don't remember exactly how he, what his turning point was, but he goes about trying to make it up to everybody that he's wronged. And he keeps this really long list of the people that he'd done bad things to, uh, just random bad things. It wasn't like he'd killed anybody or anything. He just may have stolen their chicken or something or their whatever. And he's got a list of all the things that he's done, and he's look, every episode is him looking for a chance to make it up to that person. This isn't just a Hindu idea either. It shows up in the church, in the history of the church, in the medieval uh, period especially. If you ever watch the movie Luther, what you've seen is some of the practices going on then were really this kind of system in place. The idea was if you've done wrong, then one way to get out of that, one way to maybe knock off some of the years of punishment that you would have to have to pay for what you've done wrong is to pay money to the church, to give money for things called indulgences. You're, you're buying pieces of paper that tell you that, that you have knocked off X number of years of the punishment that you deserve, and the money goes to the church to, to fund its causes. The idea, though, there is that you didn't already owe that money, so you can give that money to the church, and it'll make up for the thing that you did owe but failed to do. Now, I know that 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 idea of restitution, that you make up for what you haven't done by doing something that you didn't have to do. It, it strikes us well at the level of our common sense, I think. It seems to, to be right. And that's partly because a lot of cases in our life that is right. If you're driving down the street and you hit a stranger's car, well, let's say it costs $1,000 to fix it, and you have that $1,000, you can pay that to the stranger to fix his car, and all is well. Because you didn't owe him that $1,000. That was your money. What you owed him was to fix the thing that you'd done. But one of the things we noted last week is that if you're in a covenant relationship where you already owe everything to the person you're in a relationship with, there's really nothing that you didn't already owe that you could give them to make up for what you've done. The analogy we used last week, one that the Bible uses consistently from start to finish, is the analogy of marriage. If you're in a marriage with someone, you make a covenant to be faithful to them till death do you part. And if you break that covenant, if, say, you step outside of your marriage and you cheat on your spouse, you can't make up for that by being faithful to your spouse from that day forward. You already owed them faithfulness from that day forward. That doesn't make up for anything. That wrong is still there and unaddressed because in a covenant, you owe them everything. The point is this. The Bible's take on our relationship with God is that it is much more like a marriage than like hitting a random stranger's car. It's not like we can just pay God something we didn't already owe him to make up for what we failed to deliver to him. It doesn't work that way because we owe God everything. He has an absolute claim on our lives. He made us and he made us for himself and he made us to live in a covenant with him that that calls for everything from us. He promises in that covenant to give us everything that we need. What he calls for is a complete and unflinching trust in him that keeps us from going after other gods, for trusting in other things, that keeps us faithful to him. That's what he calls for, and that is an all-of-life commitment. So when we fail, when we fail him, there's no way to just make that up to him. There's nothing we could give him that we didn't already owe. A covenant demands 
life. When a covenant is broken, the covenant demands death. That's what the covenant of the Old Testament and the institution of its rituals was meant to show. And that's the covenantal framework, if you will. That's the the world in which the passage we're looking at this morning lives and breathes. Verses 16 to 22 describe how the old covenant deals with failure. And failure in the old covenant means death. I mentioned this before, verse 16 and 17 are a sort of summary of what a covenant is like, how a covenant works. And then verses 18 to 22 show example of, an example of that from Exodus 24, where Moses established a covenant between God and Israel after, after the delivery from Egypt. Now, in full disclosure, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Verses 16 and 17 are a little bit of a problem to interpret. Bear with me while I try to give you a little bit of a taste of this problem and how I think we can solve it. How many of you, just a show of hands here, how many of you in your translation, does verses 16 and 17 have the word will? That's pretty much everybody. Does anybody have anything else where will might go? Does anybody have covenant, for example? Testament or covenant? Okay, I've got like four people then. The, the trick is trying to figure out if verses 16 and 17 are still talking about a covenant, like verse 15 is talking about, and like verse 18 is talking about, or if they're talking about something totally different, something like a will that a person makes uh, during their life to confer their property on other people when they die. What you can't tell in your English translation is that the word that, the, that for instance, my translation, the English Standard Version, translates will is exactly the same word that's translated covenant in verse 15 and verse 18. Same word, diatheke is the, is the Greek word. Often it does mean just a will that somebody makes and then it gives pro- their property on to whoever they want after their death. But mostly when the Bible uses it, it's talking about a covenant. Now, there are good arguments on both sides of, of whether this is talking about a will in the sense that we normally mean will, or whether these verses are still talking about the covenant that's the subject in verse 15 and verse 18. I'm convinced by arguments that we're still talking about God's covenant here, that it's not a will. For one thing, I'll just to give you a little taste, a will, even in the ancient world, takes effect before a person dies. In the ESV, the way they've translated these verses, it says a will takes effect only when a person dies. But takes effect, or the establishment, the legally binding part of a will well, that's true as soon as the person signs it, not when they die. The, the, the effect of the will only passes on when they die, but the establishment of it, the fact that it's binding, happens before they die. So that doesn't quite make sense out of the language in these two verses. But the bigger issue is that it just seems unlikely that our author would swap to a di- totally different kind of example in the middle of a discussion of covenants with God. So what we'd have to do is say he's talking about the old covenant and the new covenant in verse 15. And now he's talking about a will that you make before you die. And then in verse 18, he comes back to talking about a covenant again. And that just seems so disruptive. It seems like a more natural way to read it is that he's talking about a covenant with God all the way through. And if that's what he's doing, then here's the payoff. If you're still with me. Everybody still with me? No. I'm getting like half and half. Okay. Well, hang on. Here we go. The payoff of this is that, is that verses 16 and 17 read basically like this. What they're, what they're trying to say is that in referring to a general truth about the way covenants in the ancient world worked, 
is that for a covenant to be established, for it to be put into place and legally binding, a death has to occur. Now, in, in my translation, because they're going with will instead of covenant, it, it f- shapes how they translate the rest of the verse, and it doesn't re- how I'm now trying to present it to you won't come through very clearly. There are other ways to translate this verse, and if you decide that it's a covenant, then you're going to translate it a little bit differently. And, what, and, and the, basis, the, the, the basics of that would be that in, in, in a covenant in the ancient world, you had to present a death on the front end or that covenant was not going to be binding. And that death represents your life as the person making the covenant. What that death does is say, if I should be unfaithful to this covenant, let this thing happening to this animal happen to me. You bring forward a death as the person making the, the covenant. And that's really what the language means here. It means basically where there's a covenant, the one making it has got to present a death that symbolizes his own death. Or if he doesn't do that, the covenant doesn't take effect. That's what, they, that's what verses 16 and 17 mean. It, so just to help you understand why this matters. If you're still with me, here we go. Here's, if you haven't been with me, come back to me now. And here's, where we, here's, here's the point. The death that's referred to in verses 16 and 17 is not so much a sacrifice for something that's already been done. It's a pledge of what will happen to you should you fail to break or fail, fail to keep the covenant. There's lots of sacrifice in the Old Testament for things that are already done. This is not so much that, though. What this is referring to is a ritual very common in the, old te- in the ancient world for establishing a covenant. If you want an example of this, you can read Genesis 15 where God makes a covenant with Abraham and you see this ritual playing out. Basically, what it was is that to st- establish a covenant, you bring an animal forward, you cut the animal in half, you, put the parts, you, uh, you set, the, set the two pieces aside, and you pass between them to make the covenant. That's what seals it. And what you're saying in that ritual is that if I should be unfaithful to this covenant, may what has happened to this animal happen to me. You're invoking a curse on yourself, should you fail it. That's exactly what God does for Abraham in Genesis 15. He, He tells Abraham to cut these animals in half, and then in this mysterious form, God passes between them, and the covenant is sealed. He's invoking a curse. Should I be unfaithful, let this happen to me. I mean, that's what verses 16 and 17 are talking about. A death has got to be brought forward before the covenant is established. And then verse 18 gives us an example of that. That's why I think it's just a nice, smooth reading. Verse 18 says, you know what? Even the old covenant, even the first covenant, wasn't inaugurated without blood. And then he launches into explaining how it worked. The rituals of establishing that old covenant were the rituals of bringing forward a death that would represent the people should they fail to be faithful. Verses 18 through 22 describe Moses' After he's given the commandment, taking blood and sprinkling it on everything, on the book of the covenant, sprinkling it on the people, uh, on, on all the tent and the vessels used in worship. And verse 22 sort of summarize it. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. That blood is not so much sacrifice here as a pledge of what would happen to them should they be unfaithful. The point is this, basically given to us in verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And the reason is that sins or failure require death. The old covenant was set up to make that simple point. And that's the point that sets us up for how to, to, to connect with how beautiful the message of, of Jesus is. Here's the thing. The new covenant promises forgiveness of sins 
at the heart of the other promises of life transformation. And what an old covenant member would be asking at this point, when they read that promise that sins would be remembered no more, when their consciences, defiled as they were, told them they had failed, what they would be asking is, how is it possible that God would not remember my sins anymore, but that I should continue to live? The answer is in verse 15. The reason it's possible is because a death has occurred to wipe clean sins under the first covenant, a gift of blood so powerful that it erases all impurity of conscience, and that this alone sets us free from living with a conscience of failure. Where we want to camp now, our second point this morning, is that where our failure means death. Jesus' death means our redemption. Where our failure means death, secondly, we want to note, Jesus' death means our redemption. To connect with this, I want to, I want to, 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 to help us see how this sets us free from living with a sense of failure, from living with a subjective, guilty conscience. I want to first show how this works, how Jesus' death frees us with relationship to God objectively, outside of us. How did Jesus' death accomplish, make possible God's covenant promise to forgive us of our sins? And then I want to talk about what that looks like in us, how what Jesus has done before God sets us free inside, internally, to live without guilt. That's, what I, that's how I want to unpack Jesus' death and our redemption. So first, verse 15 draws a conclusion, as we've been saying, from what we talked about last week, where we talked about Jesus' blood purifying our conscience. He is the one who guarantees God's people are going to receive what's been promised to them in the new covenant. Verse 15 talks about those who are called receiving the promised inheritance. The promised inheritance is the new covenant promises to us, and Jesus is the one who makes it possible that we should receive them. He is the mediator. Another way to translate that is he is the guarantor. He is the one who makes it possible for those promises to be ours, for us to receive our inheritance. And the reason it's possible, the way that he serves us as a guarantor is in verse 15. A death has occurred that redeems him from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is a reference, obviously, to the old covenant, to Israel and its relationship to God. But the consistent message of the Bible is that we're included here too. That all of us have failed and that all of us who believe in him are given the same promises that Israel was given. The promises of the new covenant. And that those promises to us, just like to Israel, are founded on the fact that a death has occurred in our place. A death to redeem us from the past that we've all shared the death that God's justice demanded we die. Now, to help you connect with this, let me give you an image that I think really, really brings the beauty of it home. I can't even remember now where I came across this. I know it's not original to me, this insight into to what's going on in verse 15. I don't remember where it came from, but I think it's beautiful. Remember that verse 15 is written in a covenant context, that those who would have read it would have known what the old covenant was like. They would have known what it meant to fail it, that it meant death. They would have known about the ritual that established it of cutting an animal in two, separating it, and passing through it 
to say, let this happen to me if I should be unfaithful to this covenant. They would have been familiar with that. They would have known that when it's said that Jesus died a death that redeems us from sins under the old covenant, that Jesus died the death, was torn in two where we were supposed to be torn in two. Now, knowing that, knowing that that's the covenant context for Jesus' death, that he dies the death that the covenant demanded we die, now think back to the gospel story of Jesus' death. Think back to what it was that caused Jesus his greatest pain and anguish. It was not the whipping and the nails that we tend to fixate on in our art, in our film. What caused Jesus the greatest pain was the separation that he experienced from his father. What caused him pain was the fact that he had to even cry out to his father on the cross, why have you forsaken me? If you understand that moment in light of the covenant and what the covenant says those who have failed the covenant must pay, then I think it is not too far to see, it's not going too far to see what Jesus is experiencing there as Jesus being torn in part, apart, as God himself being torn in two, taking the punishment that the covenant demanded we absorb. Does that make sense? Punishment for failing a covenant enacted in its rituals is a death, and that death looks like an animal being separated into two parts. Let this happen to me, should I be unfaithful. And on the cross... God himself steps into the covenant that we had broken. He steps into the place where we should have been torn apart and destroyed once and for all. And he is himself torn in two. We don't understand how it works. It is a mystery that is too great for our minds to comprehend. But it's true. And it's beautiful. A death has occurred that redeems us, that redeemed Israel and now redeems us for failure under God's covenant. Jesus' death means our redemption because it's there that God himself took our curse. The last thing I want to say, what I just want to barely point you to, is that that this thing Jesus accomplished under God on behalf of us to, to wipe clean a record of wrongs that demanded our punishment, this thing that happened outside of us, what a theologian would call the objective work of Jesus, something outside of us, done for us, has a radically important subjective side too. Subjective means in us, changes who we are. It's not just outside of us, it's also in us. Think back to verse 14. What are we told gets purified? It's not just that our track record is wiped clean so God is not angry with us anymore. It's also that our sense of having failed is wiped clean. That our conscience, our subjective sense that we've done wrong is now purified because of what Jesus has done. He sets us free, not just on the outside, but on the inside. He washes us so that we don't have to live under the cloud of what we've done wrong. He sets us free from our failure in a way that a balancing act, my name is Earl style, never could. He sets us free in the way only his blood could do. This is what it looks like. What I hope you'll leave asking yourself this morning, the way I hope you'll evaluate yourself this week, is to to question whether or not your life, as you're leading it now, shows the signs of someone who has experienced this from Jesus. Do you live as if, in Paul's words, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? 
How might you know if you're living that way? I've got several things I meant to say. For the sake of time, I only want to use the most direct application. I think most directly here, the most obvious takeaway is for those of you who are struggling with guilt, with a conscience that cries out against you. Here's a simple message of our passage. Jesus redeems you from that bondage to guilt over your failure. You have failed. Your conscience is telling you the truth at one level. But if you trust in him, if you claim his work as your new identity, then you are no longer defined by what you've done wrong. I know, I know for a fact that there are some of you sitting here this morning who are living under a crushing sense of guilt over your past. I know there are others of you this morning who maybe don't feel that way now, but you might next week. You, you live as if you're past redeeming, as if your identity is fixed there, as if you are and will always be what you've done, as if your identity is equal to what you've done. That's a lie. Jesus has died and there is remission. And that gives him the right to change who you are by his covenant. So that you are not what you've done. You are not, hear me, do not, do not miss this. The precious promise of verse 15 is that you are not what you've done. You are what Jesus has done for you. That sets you free from living with a crushing sense of guilt over your past. And by his power, that sets you free from living with a fear over failure of the future. Almost every time that I experience anxiety in my life, which is pretty often, if I'm, if I'm really self-aware and present in that moment, I can trace it back to some sense of fear that I'm going to fail at something. That I'm not going to be who I want to be that the standards I've set for myself or expect others to, ma- to meet are not going to be met by me. Almost everything, whether it's fear as my performance as a parent or a pastor or a, or a historian or whatever else, it, you can trace it back to that. I know I'm not alone here. And that's not exactly the same thing as being afraid that you're going to break the terms of God's covenant, but it's connected to it because that is a performance standard that I've set for myself that defines who I am and it has become my way of establishing that I am worthy of God's affection and anyone else's. And that's what's, that's what's going on in your heart too. But if you trust that Jesus has done for you everything that you were supposed to be for yourself, that he has fully accommodated to you and taken away the sense of failure that, that could be yours, then you're free, you're set free in the way that, he, that, that this writer puts it in verse 14, to serve the living God without fear. You're not frozen anymore by what you might not be. You're set free to be whatever you are because who you are really in your most fundamental sense, in an unchangeable sense that is written forever in blood. Who you are is who Jesus is. So you are free to serve the living God as a parent, as a scholar, a researcher, as a doctor, as whatever whatever you are, whatever you're doing, you can't fail. Jesus has succeeded for you and now you are free to serve him without fear for the rest of your life as a token of what will be yours forever in the kingdom of God that is coming and coming quickly. Live with that. 
Live with that. That's what Jesus' death has accomplished for you. Jesus' death means our redemption. Father, help us because we don't live with that sense. I certainly don't. I haven't even this morning. But we want that. It is, a, it, is, it is a truth, a promise, an offer made to us that we can taste. We can almost taste it and we want it. So would you give us this freedom? Set us free from our consciences that testify against us and give us consciences that are pure because they are rooted in what Jesus has done and not what we have failed to do. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.